just want to point out that God is still calling young people to serve him, and we have a reason to celebrate and give thanks. At this time, if the children would like to go toward Children's Church, I see folks in the corner ready for them. Praise the Lord for his faithfulness. I was doing so well sitting back there. <laughs> It is such a blessing to be able to celebrate God and his faithfulness. And actually, can we just take a moment and pray? Is that all right? <laughs> Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for all you've done for us. I thank you for reaching into our lives. I thank you for grace. And so many times we have fallen short. But it is you who has made up the difference. And today, Lord, we rejoice over the fact that you are still calling people to serve you and to do a work that has been passed on for generations to others to carry the message of Christ to a world that desperately needs it. Father, I pray today that you would help us to be faithful to do our part. Lord, I do pray for your blessing to fall upon those who are responding to that call. And I pray that you would help us to continually lift them up. And I pray that as you, Lord, I pray that as you work in them, that we would see such a great revival that there's no way that this world could ever, ever contain it. Father, move in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it is such a blessing to be able to worship with you today, and not just because my daughter was up here singing and leading us and all of that other stuff, but it is a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. It is a blessing to be with those who would uh, share in the grace of Jesus Christ, and each of us today has a reason to be grateful. I assume today, because you've made being in church a priority this morning, that you are a follower of Christ what does it mean to be a follower? There are many followers today. Some of you would look at your Facebook and you would see that you have 2,000 Facebook followers. You have 510 Instagram followers, 10,000 Twitter followers. Who is following you? Better yet, who are you following? We live in a world where Others are either following us or we are following them. But this didn't start with the advent of social media. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus led the way with many, many followers. As his ministry took root, he recruited 12 men, inviting them to follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Add to that the thousands who simply sought after him or after his power. Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 10 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the region, regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. 
Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. It would seem that the world was all about following Jesus. And of course, it would seem that following Jesus also seemed to mean different things to different people. To the disciples, it meant leaving everything behind and embracing all that Jesus brought to the table, the good, the bad, and everything in between. But then there were many in the crowd who might follow for a short time. Some followed until they got what they were looking for. Some followed until life got rough. Some followed until something else that seemed to be better came along. My guess is that following Jesus still means something different to different people. And maybe that's okay, or maybe it isn't. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 for a few moments. I had Colby read it to you earlier. I want us to look at three would-be followers of Christ for a few minutes, and then I want to come back to this passage in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 that I just read to you. So see, the reality is following Jesus means something different depending on who you were. What does it take to be a follower of Christ? Again, we're in Luke chapter 9, and we're going to be reading verses 57 through 62. And this is what it says. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now within these three individuals, we see some great parallels to today's church. Again, I'm not talking about those outside the church. I'm talking about those within the church. It's not a negative thing, but simply a reality. So if I were doing a, a Bible study on this particular passage, the first thing that I would note is that this first young man initiates the conversation with Jesus as opposed to the second, which Jesus invites to come and be a disciple. Jesus is simply walking down the road. He's doing some sort of ministry. He's either teaching or he's healing, and the crowds are likely phenomenal. Everybody wants to see Jesus, to get close to him. And this man comes to Jesus with what appears to be good intentions. Jesus I will follow you wherever you go. Now note that the man makes no excuses. The two that would follow 
They have excuses. They're not quite ready. This man simply says, I will follow you. He has good intentions, but it would seem that good intentions are not enough. In fact, consider what others have said about good intentions. There's a guy named Vikram Seth. I'm sure I messed up his name. He said, God save us from people who mean well. T.S. Eliot, most of the evil in this world is done by people with good intentions. Here's a quote that probably most of you have heard by Samuel Johnson. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Dennis Prager in his book, The Rational Bible, says, Without wisdom, all the good intentions in the world amount to nothing. Intending to do good without having wisdom is like intending to fly an airplane with no knowledge of airplanes or the laws of aerodynamics. Good intentions without wisdom lead to either nothing or to actual evil. Haruki Murakami, in his book, South of the Border, said, All I gained was one single undeniable fact, that ultimately I am a person who can do evil. I never consciously tried to hurt anyone, yet good intentions notwithstanding, when necessity demanded, I could become completely self-centered, even cruel. I was the kind of person who could, using some plausible excuse, inflict on a person I cared for a wound that would never heal. One last quote comes from Andrina Sawyer. One of the most dangerous traps for the believer is a good thing that's not a God thing. So according to each of these authors, it would seem that good intentions is not only inadequate, but it can even be detrimental. People often mean well, but they don't always do well. One of the reasons for this is that many do not fully consider the cost prior to their commitment. This man genuinely seems sincere. Lord, I will follow wherever you go. And it sounds like he's ready. He's eager. He wants to do it. He has good intentions, but perhaps he has not truly considered the cost. It's kind of like when Joshua instructs the people Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the, gods your ser your, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. He added, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people immediately responded that they too will serve the Lord. Far be it from us to serve any other God. We too will serve the Lord. But Joshua responds in an unexpected manner. He declares, no, you cannot serve the Lord. He tells them that this is a jealous God and that if they turn their backs on God, then he will punish them for their unfaithfulness. Now, at first glance, it, it looks like he's trying to talk them out of their decision, but that is, that is not true. What he's doing is he is encouraging them to count the cost, 
to consider this decision that they are making, to know that if they commit to this, they've got to be willing to follow through on it. He sees the intention of their heart is good, but they need more than good intentions. They need to be committed to this. I'm not much on appreciating classical music, but I know when I hear quality music. It has been said that Itzhak Perlman is the greatest violinist in the world. Some would say perhaps even in history. I wonder how many of us would love to be able to play the violin as well as he does. Sounds nice, but the reality is that such excellence doesn't happen without incredible devotion. Every morning, Perlman wakes up at 5.15. He showers, has a light breakfast, and begins his morning practice session, which lasts four and a half hours. He has lunch, reads for a while, exercises, and then begins his afternoon practice session, which lasts for another four and a half hours. In the evening, he has dinner with his family and he relaxes. This is his schedule every single day of the year, except on days that he plays concerts. On concert days, he wakes up at 5.15 in the morning, showers, has breakfast, and then practices for four and a half hours. He then has lunch reads for a while, exercises, then takes a 90-minute nap. When he wakes up, he gets dressed and goes to the concert venue. They perform a sound check. They have a brief rehearsal. And then again, he begins to practice in his own room. So would you give up nine hours a day for decades just to be able to play like Itzhak Perlman. I remember years ago taking a mission trip to Danieltown, Jamaica. I know when, when you hear that someone went to Jamaica for a mission trip, your first thought is, no, you went for vacation. But that's not truly the case. Danieltown is nothing like the touristic parts of Jamaica. In places like Montego Bay, you see all these all-inclusive resorts that are beautiful and lush, but when you get out of the major cities, you see incredible poverty. It's like a different world, and you've only gone a couple miles down the road. Danieltown was a mountainside community that was filled with poorly constructed homes that did little to keep the elements out. In fact, we were there to build a church. They already had a plot of land, and they had already been using that land for services. But the structure that they used for their worship services consisted of a dirt floor with a large tent that had been torn and tattered by recent tropical storms. I remember that we held revival services and one night a storm came through while we were worshiping. As it began to rain, the people began to gather together in tight circles. Forget about COVID, everybody's trying to stay dry. They gathered together in tight groups, attempting to avoid the rain that was falling through the many large holes in the tent. But there was one exception in Danieltown. 
As you entered the town, you were immediately greeted by this beautiful home that was midway through construction. Apparently, the owner of the home had won a large sum of money, and he set out to build a mansion that would have impressed everyone. You could only imagine what this finished product would look like. Part of the reason that you would only imagine what the finished product would look like was found in the fact that the house would never be completed. You see, the owner set out to build this beautiful home, yet he failed to consider the actual cost of completion. He had already run out of money. As Joshua addresses the Israelites, and as Jesus addresses this would-be follower of Christ, what they are doing is addressing the fact that you have not yet fully considered the cost. It may require more of you than you previously thought. Throughout the years, we've seen many who said that they wanted to follow Jesus, yet they had not truly considered the cost of following him. They followed for a time, but as soon as things got too rough, they wanted out. I'm talking about in the present day, by the way. It's happened way too often. Perhaps it wasn't that things got too rough, but rather things became too good. I don't need God anymore. I got what I was looking for. I have all that I need. And the next thing you know, they no longer need Jesus, at least in the individual's mind. Please understand that the first thing I want you to see today is that good intentions do not outweigh the value of counting the cost. In fact, good intentions by themselves amount to very little good at all. In verse 59 of our passage, we are introduced to yet another would-be disciple. In this case, he receives an explicit invitation from Jesus, an incredible honor for sure. And again, he sounds like he has very good intentions agreeing to follow, but just not yet. <laughs> Listen to it again. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, I know that this sounds like a noble cause. Perhaps his father is on his deathbed. Although most theologians do not necessarily believe that to be the case. Based on the culture that existed in that day, it was not uncommon for a family member to spend years caring for an elderly parent. As such, his request to let him first go and bury his father doesn't indicate that his father's death is imminent. In fact, the father's death very well may be years away. So while Jesus sounds harsh, let the dead go and bury their own dead. The truth is, he's just telling this guy to quit making excuses. He's got the invitation of a lifetime literally sitting in front of him. But it's as if there are other attachments that are more important to him. Think about that for a moment. You're being invited to sit under the greatest teacher of all time, the Messiah. They might not recognize just yet that he's the Messiah. 
But clearly, this is a man of great influence. This is a man who is changing the world, and you have the opportunity to sit under him, and you become a world changer. It would be talked about for thousands of years to come. You're being called, according to this passage, to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet you're going to turn it all down to stay home for the next few years. Seriously? I get it. Sometimes God calls us to care for the more centralized needs within our own family. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, we see that one of the greatest responsibilities for us is to care for our family. It says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and he is worse than an unbeliever. So it's important that we keep things in the right perspective. We need to take care of our family. I like the way this verse is addressed in one of the devotionals that I read this week. It said, following Christ is our highest priority. Nothing should stand in our way. Does that mean abandoning our responsibility to our families? Certainly not. God makes clear that how we live in our families is crucial to our discipleship and to our leadership. However, we so often use family concerns as excuses for not following rather than reconciling family matters with kingdom values and priorities. Jesus must come first. God and his kingdom must be the priority in our families. Our families must see honoring God as the primary value lived out in our own personal lives. We need to realize that at the top of every priority list should be our relationship with God. In this man's case, his attachment is to a father who may or may not be dying anytime soon. What is it that you are more attached to? Jesus is inviting you to follow him, to go and to proclaim the kingdom of God to a world that desperately needs him. How will you respond? Many will make excuses. How will you respond? Lord, I will follow, but first let me finish paying off my house. Lord, I'll follow you, but let me first climb the ladder of success a little while. Lord, I'll follow you, but I'm not quite ready to give up some of the things that I know would displease you. Lord, I'll follow you, but Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes notes that all these things that we are attached to, all the things that we chase after, they are like a chasing after the wind, very unsatisfying. And in his conclusion. In Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14, he says, The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. I want to repeat that. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of man. 
We have no greater responsibility. There may be many things that are on your to-do list. There may be many priorities that you have. But when it comes down to it, the greatest responsibility, the only responsibility we have is to make sure that our relationship with God is what it ought to be. There will come a day that this life will come to an end. In fact, last week, I shared about the coming judgment of God. On that day, all of the attachments, all the things that have dominated our lives will be put into their proper place. And that place will be behind Jesus. On the day of Christ's return, he will come. He will part the skies. And it doesn't matter if you've got a million dollars in the bank. It doesn't matter if you've got 200,000 followers on social media. You won't be looking to them. The only thing that you will want to see is Jesus Christ. We have one more individual who offers to follow Jesus in Luke chapter 9. His response is not all that dissimilar to the second individual. He says that I'll go, but first I want to go and say goodbye to my family. Certainly this is, again, an attachment issue. But it goes just a little bit further than what we saw in the first one. This is about the lack of all-in commitment on the part of this man. He's saying that he's willing to do whatever Christ wants, but not yet. A part of me says that this guy didn't really mean what he said when he said that he would follow. I remember going to my first youth pastor position. I was there for the interview, and then they gave me the chance to speak to the youth group. My predecessor, the, the youth pastor who was about to leave, was a good friend of mine. So it made the transition fairly simple. In fact, that night that I was there to share, he was there also. It was also pretty easy on the church, by the way, as my predecessor was also named Pastor Mike. So they didn't even have to worry about remembering the name to call me. I remember that first night, the old youth pastor was still there, and apparently one of the youth had been disrespectful, had a little bit of an attitude problem toward him. Well, Pastor Mike couldn't just ignore it, and for about 10 minutes, he followed this kid around trying to get him to apologize. Finally, just to get Pastor Mike to leave him alone, the young man looked over and he said, fine, I'm sorry. Pastor Mike looked over, he said, you didn't mean it, and he turned and smiled and walked away. <laughs> I wonder if this guy in our passage meant it when he said he would follow Jesus. It's curious that his response so accurately mirrors the response of Elisha as found in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah had been the most influential prophet in Israel, and now Elisha has the opportunity to follow him, learning from him, and taking on the mantle after Elijah's departure. Listen to Elisha's response in 1 Kings 19, verse 19 to 21, and then keep in mind this guy who says, I'll follow, but let me first go and say goodbye to my family. 1 Kings 19, verse 19 to 21, it says, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, 
who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was in the 12th. Elijah passed by and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what, I, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their fish with their yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. When Elijah placed his cloak upon him, he was symbolically saying, come and follow me. Probably what's most interesting to me is that God responds differently with these two men. They both say the same thing. I'll follow you, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. Let me kiss my father. Let me kiss my mother goodbye. Yet they get very different responses. Perhaps that's because God knew that the heart of these men was very different. Let me explain. On, on the one hand, the man whom Jesus is addressing claims to want to follow Jesus, but he's less than committed to it. Perhaps he wants the advice of others. Should I follow after Jesus? Should I leave everything else behind? It could be argued that he liked Jesus. He liked the crowds. He liked the notoriety, but he wasn't yet ready to leave everything behind. On the other hand, we see Elisha. His return trip to say goodbye to his family involved the burning of bridges to his own past. He would take all of his tools that he used for his trade. He would burn them. He would offer the oxen up as a sacrifice, giving the meat to the people. The first man with whom Jesus spoke says that he's in, but he's not all in. Elisha is so committed to this that he's willing to close the door to the past. Know that God is not looking for half-hearted followers. He longs for us to be fully devoted to him at all times. He wants people who really mean it when they say that they will be his disciples. My hope is that that would accurately describe each of you, wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. But one of the concerns I have for the church is that being a follower of Christ seems to mean different things to different people. I mentioned this earlier. You had the 12 disciples who left everything to follow Jesus. And then you have the crowds that followed in Mark chapter 7. They were the ones who they were enamored with what Jesus taught and his miraculous power. And they seemed to be everywhere that Jesus went. However, the reality is that for most in the crowd, they went home each night. Sure, they would hang on his every word throughout the day, but eventually Jesus would go to another town and another crowd would gather to hear and to see the Son of God. And what would happen is all throughout the countryside, there would be those who could reflect on the encounter that they had had with Jesus. The problem is that for many in the crowd, the story of their encounter with Jesus would become a part of the distant past. Picture some of them gathering with their neighbors, remembering the good old days. You remember when Jesus came to town? 
You remember that little girl that was sick and they thought she was going to die and suddenly Jesus raised her back to life? You remember when he talked to the Pharisees and he put them in their place and he showed them the way that they were supposed to live and they couldn't even respond? He talked about all these stories about the good old days when they had their experience with Jesus. Problem is, their experience with Jesus was in the past. Several years ago, I began to write a book. And the reality is, I'm still not done with it. <laughs> Apparently, I'm a slow writer. I could look at it and I could explain to you how I wrote that book three years ago. And I could almost give this image that it's something in the past, but the truth is, it's still being written. The same thing should be true with you and me. See, I fear that there are many in the church who would call themselves followers of Christ because they had an encounter once, way back then. 20 years ago, I knelt at an altar. That was, man, those were the good old days. Spirit of God moved in my life. I felt free. I had this weight of sin that was removed. Man, for once I had hope, I had purpose. It was wonderful. How recent is your experience with Jesus Christ? So being, being a follower of Jesus needs to be more than I used to follow Jesus. Are you still following Jesus? I believe today that God wants to do great things in you. And in this church. But if you're not actively following Jesus, something is wrong. Last week I asked the question, do you really believe that the Lord is coming back? And the primary focus of that was to say, if there are people in your life that need Jesus, how can you sit back and not say anything to them? But now I ask you for the same reason, do you still believe Jesus is coming back? How recent, how active is your relationship with him? Is your story still being written? Or have you moved on to another book? If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you, Lord, we are so grateful to know that you desire to write our story all the way until the very end. Father, I pray today that if there be anyone in this room that has a story that perhaps they have stopped writing, but I pray that right now you would impress upon them the need for a renewed story with you. Father, restore unto us the joy of your salvation. Renew a steadfast spirit in us. Father, I pray today that we would have such a hunger for you that we could not settle, we could not be satisfied with anything less than an active, living relationship with you. Father, I pray that we would be followers in such a way that others, if they chose to follow us, that they would actually be following you. Father, I pray that you would change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I love what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He said, be imitators of me just as I also imitate Christ Jesus.
if you are truly following Christ, if others choose to follow you, they ought to be following Christ as well. Make sure that that's the case. Thanks for being a part of our service this morning. I will tell you, next week we're starting a new series, and it is focused on what revival ought to look like. And we're going to be focused on that for about a month or so, so I want to encourage you, come back. If you know individuals who need the Lord, bring them. It's a great time to be able to share the good news of Christ with them. Thank you for being with us this morning, and go in peace.